Good morning. My name is Emily Hughes, and I'm going to read our passage this morning out of Romans 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 out of the CSB. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for this place to come and to worship this morning. We praise you that you are present with us and already at work in hearts and minds. Thank you for the reminder from scripture that we need to be renewing our mind daily in your word so that we can discern your will. I pray that you would instill in us a deep love for the body of Christ, that we would recognize not only the gifts you've given us to use, but to appreciate and encourage the gifts that others need to be using to serve and make your church a place where all are welcome, where there is growth, and where you are glorified. Lord, we exalt you this morning. We lift your name high. We ask that you would soften our hearts to hear your word, to be fed, and to go serve others and share the gospel. How we love you, Jesus. We praise you for our time together, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. How are we doing this morning, family? Doing well? It's, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12. And I want to pray one more time for us. Father God, as we sit here in the comfort of this morning and in this place, in this sanctuary, we remember as a family uh, those whom we have sent out, uh, Bruce and Dovey Gross. I, I think to another place where Paul, um, coming under some criticism for his apostleship as he was writing to Corinth, 
talking about the connection that he had with them and said, is it not true that you are our letter? And so Bruce and Dovey go as our letter to Thailand. They go as emissaries of your kingdom in the name of your son, Jesus. And we ask for you to strengthen them physically, to protect them spiritually, to move through them powerfully. They're gone for a long time till March 3rd. Do much for your sake through them. Can't wait to hear stories when they get back of what you have done. Bless us now here in this place as we study your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I read this past week that the Pew Research Center reports that around 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians. 63%. Hmm. I don't think that number tells the whole story because it's pretty obvious in our culture that just identifying as a Christian doesn't actually tell us if those folks are truly following the teachings and the way of Jesus. Do we really believe that 63% of Americans are fully committed followers of Jesus? Now, that's a hard thing to discern, right? You can get yourself in all kinds of trouble and pride trying to discern who's really following Jesus. But the Barna Group, another research group, has recently attempted it. They tried to get a handle on those that they would call resilient disciples, those actively pursuing Jesus. You know, kind of how we say at Grace, what what we're trying to say here is, is those who are growing one step closer to Jesus. Now, what we kind of assume in that sense are those who are intentionally growing one step closer to Jesus. In Barna's current estimate of resilient disciples, around 4%. So 63% self-identify as Christians. The truth of the matter is it's probably close, closer to what Barna's finding, around 4%. It would appear that we Protestants aren't all that different from our Catholic friends who would differentiate between what they call practicing Catholics and, you know, just Catholics. The former is someone truly devoted, and the latter is merely a label, someone just kind of loosely identified with the faith tradition that they grew up in. Friends, if this research is even in the ballpark of the truth, then the church is facing a serious problem. Over 18 years ago, Christian author and philosopher Dallas Willard published a book called The Great Omission, Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings on Discipleship. In the preface, he made this statement. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples of Jesus Messiah, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every 
corner of human existence. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. The greatest issue facing the world today. And it seems the issue has only gotten worse since Willard said that. For as we just heard, Barna reports that only around 4% of those in our churches are resilient disciples. Is this the greatest threat facing the world today? I mean, what about war? Rising crime rates? Social fracturing? Political divisions? Economic disparities, rampant addictions, and on and on and on. We could list the issues facing the world today. Aren't those the greatest issues facing the world today? Well, as I am a minister of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, it is my duty to proclaim this morning that those are not the greatest issues facing the world today. Because all of those issues are merely symptoms of one simple truth. We live in an age stained by sin. Where evil principalities and powers and spirits rule. All under the guidance of the Satan. In league with our flesh that would threaten to undo us. It's my duty to proclaim that simple reality and truth. But it is my joy (laughs) to proclaim that the only answer to this existential threat to humanity is that the kingdom of the heavenly realm under the rule and reign of King Jesus may increasingly break into this age. And Willard is saying that the only way that that is going to happen is if there are more and more disciples of Jesus who are steadily learning from Jesus how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's the only way the kingdom's going to break in. Okay, so why the long introduction? Why am I saying all of this? Because I think it's exactly what Paul is now on about as he continues writing to the Romans what we know as chapters 12 through 16. You see, like Jesus, Paul, (laughs) Paul is not interested in converts to Christianity. He is not interested in converts. Rather, he is interested just as Jesus was interested in disciples True disciples who are actively practicing the way of Messiah. He doesn't want someone who's merely raised a hand or gone forward at an evangelistic rally or prayed a prayer, asked Jesus into their hearts so that they might be saved from hell. As one old dead guy said, a person who is simply a man of faith is not a disciple. See, Paul is looking for people who understand that beliefs and behaviors are inextricably woven together because Paul understands something really, really important, something I told you months ago. Grace grace is opposed to earning. Do not forget that. Write this down. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed 
to effort. It is not opposed to effort. Because Paul knows that faith without works is dead. Paul knows that people truly converted are people truly practicing the way of Jesus. And he understands that this is not only an individual pursuit, but a communal one. Which means we're going to be getting up in each other's business about our efforts and behaviors. Paul knows that communities of such people must gather together and spur one another on and exhort each other in this pursuit of practicing, of self-discipline, of self-initiative. Paul knows that such a community of disciples will not only benefit themselves, but will also be a light and a beacon to the pagan culture that surrounds them. This is exactly what he has said, is it not, in Romans 11, what we're just coming off of? Gentiles were saved. They were to be actual disciples. Why? To make the Jews jealous. You can't make someone jealous if they can't see anything to be jealous about. And so now we Gentiles, having seen that truth, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be actual disciples so that the pagan world around us does what? Looks at us and is what? Jealous. <laughs> Do they have anything to be jealous of? You see, the church is to be a sign and a foretaste of the world that the world has always wanted. The world ought to be jealous because what they see in us is what it is to be truly human, to experience human flourishing. I love that word. Who doesn't want to, like when you hear that word, even if you don't know what it means, doesn't it just sound good? Oh, I want to flourish. Come on, right? Since I'm a word guy, let me help you and I'll define it for you. To flourish is to be healthy. It's to be vigorous. It's to be happy because of the environment that you are in, right? It's like putting miracle Grow on a plant. Man, there is not a lot of plants that flourish in Colorado. I got to tell you, after two years, I've learned that much. But we are meant to flourish. What does that look like? What is... What is Paul proposing? I like pictures. Here's what I think Paul is proposing. There is this present evil age. This is an age. And there is a future age that is coming. And we live right here. How's that for a logo? (laughs) People said I can't draw. Grace Church, a community of what we want to be. Like this, this is the overlap right here. We want to be actual 
resilient disciples. And what, what Paul is on about is he's saying, I want you to be transformed. Right? I, I, want, I want you to shine brightly into the culture, and, and I want you to do that. Here's what we're going to see in the text today. Embody and mind. That's us living in this overlap of the ages. What we're doing is we're pulling the future age into this present age. We're to be a taste and a foretaste of the world that the world actually wants. We're establishing the kingdom here. We have work to do. We have work to do. So how do, how do we become this shining, transformed example there in the overlap of the circles? How do we become radiant, displaying kingdom values and behaviors, living out the Jesus way, doing as he did? Well, Paul's initial response is in verses 1 and 2. I meant to get to verse 8, not going to happen. Verses 1 and 2, that's what we're covering this morning. And what, it, what it's really doing is it's opening the door and Paul's laying a foundation for what he's going to do for the rest of this letter now. And what he's saying in these verses, I believe, is that we must live transformed body and mind in response to God's mercies. There are behaviors that are supposed to happen from us. But I want you to note, I want you to notice tone. This, isn't, this didn't hit me until I was listening to all of Romans on a hike yesterday with my Dwell app. Get Dwell, great app. Paul's going to say in Romans 15, verse 15, because here's the tone, right? Because maybe, maybe you've been here the whole Romans series and you're like, man, it's just been about grace and grace and grace. Oh, I'm a little nervous. He's talking about effort this morning. It's talking about work to do. Oh, this sounds like the Christianity I grew up in. That kind of freaks me out. Paul knew that you might be thinking that, which is why I think he writes in Romans 15, 15. My dear friends, don't take my rather bold and blunt language as criticism. It's not criticism. I'm simply underlining how very much I need your help in carrying out this highly focused assignment that God has given me. This priestly and good news work of serving the spiritual needs of non-Jewish outsiders so that they can be presented as an acceptable offering to God made whole and holy by God's Holy Spirit. So I'm not criticizing you. I need you. I need your help. Why? Because I want to save people. I want to see them saved. I want to see them whole because there's so many broken, fractured, hurting people around. And that's not just going to magically happen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Romans 12.1, open your Bibles, look at it now, look at it. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, Okay, so note first who he is addressing, brothers and sisters. <laughs> brothers and sisters. You see, this isn't just about you. This is about us. Now, you might be thinking that that's an unimportant detail not worth focusing on or calling out, 
But you're going to see in Paul's teaching ahead that this is really important. This is about our communal pursuit of Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this on our own. We have to mutually encourage one another to love and good works. And the only way to move forward is to move forward together as family. As family. You know, every Sunday morning when the worship team prays for these moments, at the end of our prayer time together, I always call us together in, in a circle, or if it's really big, it's kind of like an amoeba. And, and, and we put our arms around each other. And, and we pray. And I do that because I want us to, to see that we're together. I, I, wish, I wish I could have screened 400 t-shirts to give out today that say better together. Because we are. We're better together. Now second, note where he's telling us as brothers and sisters to look. Where's he telling us to look? So we put our arms, yeah, we're shoulder to shoulder. We got this, we're gonna do this together. Where do we look, Paul? He says, look at the mercies of God. What are the mercies? What are the mercies? Well, the word means the compassions of God or the kindnesses of God. It it speaks to God's deep awareness of and sympathy for our suffering. And what Paul is pointing to is that God has done something about that suffering. And we know where to look for that something he's done because of the word, therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, what's the therefore pointing to? Well, it's pointing to all of chapters 1 to 11, where we have seen displayed on the screen of history the human devastation due to sin and the initial reversal of that devastation through Paul's description in Romans 2 through 4 of the sovereign, free, undeserved kindness of God toward us in Jesus. Turn back in your Bibles to Romans 3 with me. Okay, there's going to be a little Bible drill here today. So turn back to Romans 3, verse 21. Romans 3.21, I want to give you just a taste of the mercies. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Messiah to all who believe, because there's no distinction. There's none. You see, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But... Those same all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah, Jesus. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness Because you see, in his restraint, God had formally passed over all of the sins of humanity. He'd been so restrained. 
And then God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that God would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. (laughs) That's good news. Amen? That is good news. And if you haven't believed it before, you could believe it right now in this room or on that live stream. The blood of Jesus covering all of your sins. The forgiveness that you just sang about, yours. Freedom. Freedom. Of course, this is just one tiny sampling of all of the mercies of God on display in Romans 1 to 11. But that is precisely the display that Paul is now pointing to. And remember, see, this is what's so hard for us when we've been studying this since October of 2021. I mean, when when the Romans read this, right, when they got to this point in the letter, they've just gotten done reading 11 chapters of the mercies of God. They would have now arrived at this moment with Paul saying, okay, you, you you see this gigantic pile of grace? You see this? Huge amount of evidence that I've given you of the grace and mercies of God. Okay, now look at that. Look at that. And what do you think your response should be? When you see all of what God has done, everything I've recounted to you, well, it should be abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. There should be rising up in you deep desires of gratitude that lead to action because of what God has done for you. You see, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace actually births effort. Belief leads to new behavior that is in line with the God who provides that grace and belief. And so Paul can say, I urge you in response to this to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship. So here's Paul's first step in living transformed. If if we're going to live transformed, if we're going to be this bright, shining example Paul says the first step in that is that God cares about what you do with your body. In a minute, he's going to talk about our minds. God cares about what you do with your body a great deal because God's the one who made your body. And our bodies matter to God. We are embodied people. We are not disembodied spirits. Michael Bird reflects that, that worship that is living, holy, and pleasing to God does not take place on some spiritual plane. But it occurs with what we do through our physical bodies. Paul's been consistent about this in the letter. This should come as no surprise to us in, in what we know as chapter 12. Paul's already told us that what we do with our bodies can pull us... See... There's pulls here. And, and this evil age is not content to just leave you with your body without fighting. What we do with our bodies can pull us into this evil age. 
That's why he says in Romans 6. Turn there. Romans 6, verse 12. I love that sound. (laughs) Romans 6, verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it. Would you look at yesterday? Would your tongue speak yesterday? What did your hands do? Where'd your feet take you? Do not any, any, any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Whose side are you on? Look at verse 19, chapter 6. And just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity, you know, before Jesus, and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now, in Jesus, right, here's the work, offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. And this is why Paul now pleads with us, verse 1. The word is urge in the CSB, but, but see, the word implies, I like pleads a little better because it implies that he's not trying to get us to do something that we might not otherwise do, something that we might not want to do. Rather, he's appealing to something that is now within us by the Holy Spirit, placed there by God, that due to the overwhelming mercies of God, based on what God has done for us, we must now do in response. He's pleading, offer your bodies to God. And that we'd want to do this. Why? Why would he plead? Because what we do with our bodies is critically important to being a disciple of Jesus. We must not be indifferent to the use of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. What was that price? The blood of Jesus, the slaughter of his own son. So glorify God with your body, Paul writes to the Corinthians who were decidedly not glorifying God with their bodies. In other words, as disciples of Jesus, as those living in the way of Messiah, we must live in such a way to make clear to the world that our bodies belong to God. That in our bodies, the values and behaviors of the kingdom would be clearly seen and on display. You know, it struck me at this moment that, do you remember when Jesus would say over and over again, and particularly in, in Matthew's story of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of, what was he saying? He was saying, it's, it's here, it's in, it's in me. 
It's in this body that you see. You see, his body, what he was doing with his body was a display of the kingdom of heaven. And so to make sure that they made the connection, he kept saying, do you see how I'm living? The kingdom of heaven is here. Do you think that's any less true of us, family? That's what's so exciting that we could also say, <laughs> I've never thought of this before because I get so scared of you know, acting like I could be like Jesus when that's exactly what I'm supposed to be. That I could come you know, and be like over there at high side, you know, kicking back some apps and be like, hey, y'all, the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. Come on, hang out with me. Now, it's a little cheeky, and it's true, because if someone did come, come and hang out with me, and if they lived with me, that's what they should see, right? That's what they should get. A, it should be a foretaste. Wouldn't the greatest compliment ever to be for someone to say to you, when I hang out with you, I see, I see Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's possible. It's possible. God wants it. And this is the opposite of self-indulgence. So Paul is saying, makes it clear, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice, <laughs> which we don't like. Americans despise sacrifice. They do. In the main, they despise sacrifice. We love comfort. Give me more. Don't ask me to sacrifice something. In the same way that animal bodies were offered to God as a sacrifice, so us. But not to death. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true worship. To which you should ask, what does that mean? What's true worship? What's false worship? Well, the word behind the English word true actually means reasonable or in accordance with reason. I like how one translation puts it, a worship that is worthy of thinking beings. You see? See, when, when you hear it that way, I think Paul is saying that offering our body to God is precisely the thing that would be abundantly obvious to thinking creatures. Of course I would do this. It's so reasonable. Why would I not offer my body as a sacrifice? He's saying that the way that we offer our bodies should also be done so thoughtfully. To this end, the theologian Chrysostom asked, how should the body be a sacrifice? To which he answered this. It's there in your service guide. If you look at it, I put the quote here for you. So you'd have it and could think about it further. Prevent your eye from looking at something evil. It has become a sacrifice. Do not let the tongue say something shameful. It has become an offering. Do not let the hand perform a lawless action. It has become a whole burnt offering, it, right? Jesus says, if your hand sins, cut it off. If your eye sins, gouge it out. Sacrifice it. Yet these things are not enough. It's kind of, it's kind of like the negative. We must also do good works. Let the hands give alms. Let the mouth bless those who abuse. Let the hearing devote itself continuously to listening to divine speech. For sacrifice has nothing impure about it. Sacrifice is the first fruits of all other actions. Let us then make a sacrifice to God of the first fruits of our hands, our feet, our mouth, and all the other members of our body. 
Now, because Paul sees us as whole beings, whole beings, so the path to human flourishing doesn't run solely through what we do with our bodies, but also with what we do with our minds. And I think he's setting these two aspects of who we are as humans, not as one flowing from the other, but really almost alongside of each other, body and mind. Both are critical to living transformed in response to God's mercies. And so now he appeals to us to engage our minds in discipleship to Jesus. And the first thing that we have to be aware of in this is that we are not in a neutral environment in our minds. Our minds are not like Switzerland, absent of any allegiances. No, they are active There are active forces trying to shape our minds into their molds. It's a present evil age. Look in your Bibles, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. Okay, yep, we we got that, Paul. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may then discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So this takes us back here to this vigil. And the, this vigil, and the first thing that we need to understand is that he says, do not be conformed to this age. Okay, so just again, this is some, a little bit of biblical theological teaching for you, right? Like, he's not talking about do not be conformed to this world as if there's going to be another world that we go to. This is the world that we will be on for eternity. Okay, God's going to remake this world, see Revelation. He's going to remake this world. The issue is there's a present age and there's an age to come. This present age is trying to conform you into its mold of evil and wickedness and you're supposed to fight against that and fight positively for a future age that you're pulling into the present age so you can be the overlap of the kingdoms everywhere where you go and everywhere we go. Right now, what is this? (laughs) This is an embassy of the kingdom of God planted in Colorado, U.S. of A. And we are ambassadors of the Messiah bringing about that kingdom. We are citizens of another land. See, Jesus, Paul wants us to be like Jesus. Was Jesus conformed to this world, this age? No. Did this age successfully mold Jesus into its shape? Absolutely not. More than anyone in the history of the world, Jesus broke the mold. He stood in this age as a radiant display of the future age and future kingdom. And while I would argue his whole life is proof of that radiance, one of the clearest examples of it was the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount. Do you remember this? Both Matthew and Mark write about this event, which is, which is important to what Paul is on about here in Romans. Here's why it's important. I, oh, I love the Bible. I love connections in the Bible. They just open it up and make it alive. Because the same word that's used of Jesus in Matthew and Mark's accounts for, that we see rendered as transfigured is the same word that Paul uses here in Romans 12, 2 for transformed. Ah! That is so good. Because what it means is, I'm supposed to be 
as radiant and as bright a display. Because what was the transfiguration event? It was a peak, right? It was the glory that Jesus had laid aside when he came, Philippians. He had taken back on and the veil of his human flesh gets pulled aside for a second and that future glory just gets revealed in all of its radiance. And that's what Paul is saying. Like what we're fighting for is to keep taking off like the, like the dirt that kind of covers the, like have you ever get the chrome on your car gets all dirty and you, wipe, you wash that car out and you stand back, you're like, oh baby, it looks good. Right, like that's, we're like buffing. <laughs> So we can just radiantly shine, pulling the future into the present. That we can be transformed like that. So how's that going to happen? You should be asking that question. Okay, preacher man, how do I do that? Well, since there's a lot of football talk happening right now due to the NFL playoffs... You know, since we're all going for the Lions and the Ravens, it's if, if we're true disciples of Jesus. Okay, I may be, see what happens when I don't go according to my manuscript, just getting all kinds of trouble. It seems apropos to point out that we need a good defense and a good offense. We need a good defense because this age is going to, it's never going to give up pressing us into its mold. It never is. It wants to get us to look like it in how we think and thus be transformed into its image and its likeness. And we must refuse to conform to the thoughts of the world and the culture around us And I think that most of us know that there's an ever-present and concerted effort by this age to influence how we think. But if you didn't know that, you could... I mean, it's amazing to me how much more we learn the the, the further along we go. Cutting-edge neuroscience right now that's revealing and confirming more and more what Paul said centuries ago, that the human mind can be shaped by outside influences and messaging... Right? They, they call it neuroplasticity, that, that your mind is, that it can be shaped. Whether it's social media that sucks you into doom scrolling, getting you addicted to dopamine hits in your brain, much like a drug addict's high, to keep you swiping for hours. Have you ever gone down the rabbit hole that is Instagram? Like, or YouTube? And like, all of a sudden you're oh my gosh, I've been doing this for 90 minutes. The use of algorithms to identify your desires to give you more and more what you crave. Whether it's marketing experts getting us to change the way that we think about ourselves in order to lure us into spending our money. Whether it's streaming services who create in us the fear of missing out so that we must absolutely subscribe to their service so that we can watch the show, you know, that everybody is talking about. So that, because, you know, the only way that we can be truly happy is to binge episode after episode until it's just like, coming out of our ears like some kind of media zombies and on and on and on the shaping and the conforming go and Paul says defend your mind don't let the world squeeze you into its shape fight 
by any means possible, fight. But we need a good offense too because the goal is transformation, to be changed fundamentally, positively, spiritually. You see, neuroplasticity works both ways, for ill or for good. It doesn't matter where you're at. Here's the beautiful thing. Like if you come, you came in here this morning, it doesn't matter where you're at right now. What, what shape your mind is in, in one sense. It doesn't matter. Okay, today can be day zero. Okay, so I'm, I'm declaring do-over. There it is. Clean. Starting right now. It's square one. Our minds can be reshaped collectively together. We can reshape our minds to be renewed, to be reformed, to abide and live in the presence of God. And we have the power and the help of the Holy Spirit within us to do that. I mean, those of us who are truly disciples, we have the power within us to do this. And, and this won't just happen on its own. See, that's the, that's the tension. There's tension in the Christian life. Okay, it's, it's okay. It's okay to live in the tension. He's saying, you have the Holy Spirit and you have a part to play. Renew, it's a command. Renew, it's effort. Renew. It's not, you know, some of us, I think sometimes as Christians, I think we just, I think, we just think that we're just gonna wake up some morning and be like, oh, look at my life. It completely and perfectly reflects the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. I am the Sermon on the Mount. This is amazing. It just happened. I got zapped by the Holy Spirit, and I'm perfect. No. Sorry. It's not going to happen. Our minds will not renew themselves. Bringing the transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus that we desire, it will take concerted effort, which grace is not opposed to. It will take practice. It is a skill. You see, you were conformed, Paul said in Romans 1.28. You were conformed to the world. You were growing in a depraved mind. So now you must be conformed to the Messiah to have a renewed mind. You're gonna have to engage in persistent practice for this. You're gonna have to create new mental habits. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be moved. I want to watch this show. I know it's TVMA. I know it says when it started that rated TVMA for for graphic violence and and language and nudity. But I'm going to watch anyway. I'm going to watch the nudity. I have set Yahweh before me. No, I'm not, no, I'm not going to, nope, not going to be moved. Nope, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up VidAngel, heard it's a decent show, going to, going to put all, going to filter all that bad stuff out. $9.99 a month, VidAngel, thank you, Jesus. We're going to have to set our minds on things above, Colossians 3, 2. Listen again to Dallas Willard. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds, That is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. 
Now, in the early time of our practicing, we, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. We'll be constantly distracted by a million other things. But those are habits too. They're not the law of gravity. They can be broken. And a new grace-filled habit can replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the longing, the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star, the, the pole star of our inward beings. John Mark Comer, who, who quoted that, that's where I saw that, he quoted it in his new book, Practicing the Way, which I commend to you. I'm halfway through, but I commend it to you. He, John Mark Comer says, Willard's talking about turning God into a habit, <laughs> which at first that sounds kind of like, that doesn't sound very good, like turning God into a habit. But he says, but listen, I, I love Willard's word picture of a compass that constantly returns to the north. We can habituate our minds which scientists refer to as our directed attention to constantly return to God. Each time you get a little mental breath in the busyness of your life, the split second after you hit send on the email, the moment when you come to a red light, those first conscious thoughts, when you awake from sleep, through deliberate practice, you train your mind to come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. And eventually your mind, and through it, your entire body will anchor itself in God, which isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, abide in me. Even in all the noise and chaos of the modern world with its traffic to suffer, its meetings to attend, its babies to feed, you can develop a mind that is rooted in God. And when you create a habit like that, it means that you are constantly contemplating God. And scriptures, the scriptures teach us that when we do that, when we turn God into a habit in this way, when we practice this in our lives daily, transformation will occur. It will occur. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of Jesus are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, and that comes from Jesus, who is the Spirit. Does that sound like a promise to you? It does. And what, un what releases the promise in your life? What's the condition? Contemplating Jesus, beholding God. Let me say for, for just a second, we're the place, good news, plus safety, plus time. Okay, this is going to take time. Okay, so let me help you right now. All you type A number ones on the Enneagram, like, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. This is going to take time. I read just last night, old guy saying, your third best decade is your 60s. Your second best decade is going to be your 70s. And your first best decade is going to be your 80s. Why? Because it takes time to be transformed into the image of Jesus. We, Americans, are we not about click it and get it? Right? Click it and get it. Like immediate. That's not the way this works. 
It'll take time. So it's okay. It's okay. Progress. That's why we say one little step closer to Jesus at Christ. We're just, we're just trying to help someone else grow. One little step. Counts. Counts. Because then what's going to happen? <sighs> counts. That one counts too. Just got me even. When we gaze upon Jesus, we're transformed into his image. Set your minds on him. Well, you know what? I'm out of time. Let me give you one other thing, and I'm not gonna be able to talk about it very much, but you gotta have a plan. You gotta have a plan. Okay, and, and so, much, so many of us, we, we just walk out of church and we just forget everything that we heard, and, and there's no, ch- like, in order for things to change, things have to change. Let me say that again. In order for things to change, things gotta change, right? So things are going to have to change in your life if you want this, if you're going to renew your mind. Like if, if old habits are going to go and new habits are going to form, what's going to be your plan? My plan, a, a number of years ago, pr- probably four years ago, I, I actually heard an interview with John Mark Comer. And uh, in that interview, it, it changed my life. He said that he wanted to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And then this old ancient practice, I, I came into contact, which he's now like, put in his book, I came into contact with this practice through another person, some old dead guy, uh, I think it was St. Benedict, um, called a rule of life, a rule of life. <laughs> Again, <laughs> some of us go, rule, <laughs> I want a rule, I want standards. Well, yeah, you need them. And I created this rule of life. And my, so this was my attempt to do what Willard is saying, to push the kingdom into every single corner of my life. So my entire life, my, my to-dos, my tasks, my calendar, my schedule, this is the thing that runs my life. I look at it, this is the pole star of my life, trying to create my life. Look at it every Sunday afternoon. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And so to be with Jesus, I, I need to abide in Jesus and I need to set my mind on Jesus and to become like Jesus. There, there are things I need to be doing with my body and, and I need to take rest and how am I developing relationships and to do what Jesus did. How does that play out in my work and with my money and, and speaking the good news to others and opening my life to hospitality and having other people who don't know Jesus. This isn't just hanging out with Christians and people like you. It's different than you who don't know Jesus. I could talk for another hour on this. We don't have time. But this is what Romans 12 to 16 is going to be about. And I'm going, to keep coming, I'm going to keep coming back to this. Can you say it with me? Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. And then what's your plan to push that into every... Oh, worship team, would you come up? We're going to sing again. What's, what's your plan to push it into every... And I want to help you with that. Over the next... However many sermons were in these chapters. I want to help you with that. Because you know what? I think a lot of us actually don't know how to do that. And again, do over. It's okay. I don't care how old you are. There's no shame here. This is a safe place. It's okay to come and go, man, I'm in my 60s. 
right? You're always going to be growing. So what, what does God have for you now in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s? And don't waste your gray hairs for Jesus, right? So we're going to help each other. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what God's going to do to transform us to be, what did Jesus say we're supposed to be? Salt. Salt of the earth. What did he say we're supposed to be? The light of the world. Oh, man. Man, we're going to be a city set in a valley. And we're going to be so stinking bright, we're going to shine right over those mountains. May it be so. May the mind of Jesus be in us to accomplish it. Amen.